Winning is an everyday mindset, and we're here to help. I'm Craig Robinson. Join me and Coach John Calipari for Ways to Win. How do you play? How do you work when you're not at your best? Coach Cal and I will share some wisdom from our time coaching, and we'll apply that wisdom to your off-court challenges. you got to win every day. Find the Ways to Win podcast anywhere you listen. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at First, first Listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, what up? Welcome in. I'm Doug Gottlieb. This is All Fall. Uh, we continue my conversation with Pat Burke. Of course, Pat was a, a star uh, in FIBA basketball, most notably, I, I would say, in Spain is where he's most known for, for playing and being a, being a menace. Of course, played in the NBA with the Orlando Magic and with the Phoenix Suns. How did he get to where he got to? How did he – and this is coming off of, by his own accounts, a disappointing senior year. Here's part two. The beginnings of the pro journey with Pat Burke. Pat, you get done playing at Auburn. Okay. Well, take me through the process of, because uh, back then there was, right, there was, uh, um, there was Phoenix, which was for seniors. And then, of course, there was Chicago. But there was also, uh, what's the one in Virginia? I can't remember what, what it's called. Portsmouth. Uh, Port, there's Portsmouth. What did you attend? So I I went to both Phoenix and Chicago. Okay, so you go to Phoenix, and as we had discussed in a previous pod, disappointing senior year, you were way too bulky to start the year, you couldn't move, okay? But in, you know, and, and you've been very honest about your confidence going up and down and up and down. Your confidence was really high coming into the year, and then, um, what do you remember about going to Phoenix in terms of your own personal expectations? Um, I remember you know, when I got there, obviously you're seeing some of the best athletes from that year. So uh, I just went in and just thought to myself, I just have to have a good showing. Um, you know, there's a combine. So you're doing all types of tests, you know, vertical and uh, sprint defensive slides, all of these things. Um, but then again, it still played out. Uh, as I recall, that uh, you know, coaches were also looking to make their mark. So a lot of playing time, even though it was spoken like, "Hey guys, this is not about me." The, the coach would share, "That's not about me. This is about letting you guys get your exposure." And uh, that's that's not what happened. It was you know the guys who were you know more of a let's say a star at the time. Those guys would have played more minutes. And uh, I, but I wasn't complaining because I was, again, I was very um, satisfied being there. I had a lot of gratitude for even being there, understanding that, you know, a couple of years ago, I never even thought this was possible. Um, okay. Uh, draft night. This is, this is, this is 1997. Yeah. Right? 
1997. Who's your agent? Uh, Warren Legary. I actually, okay. uh, yeah. Warren uh, came out as a front runner. I went through a couple of different interviews and uh, his partner at the time, um, he kept telling me, oh, I work for this really great guy. I work for this really great guy. And I'm like, well, then why can't I have him as my representation? So he said, that's no problem. So then we went and I started speaking to Warren. I met him um, after the uh, like the first game in Phoenix at the at the combine. And he, he came up to me. And he was like, wow, you know, you're you're a really good athlete. And, uh, you know, he started complimenting me. And uh, he said, you know, I'm getting some good feedback. And so then like that one of those evenings, I went to dinner with him and I was out with like all these NBA coaches and GMs and just, you know, fish out of water. And uh, so anyways, after the combine, we went through Milwaukee, Houston, uh, I think Chicago, uh, as some of the, some of the teams that, you know, had some interest. So when I'm done with uh, going through and, and kind of doing like a one day workout, uh, Milwaukee shares to Warren, that he's like, hey, if Pats are there at 46 in the second round, we're going to pick him up. So I get all excited. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is incredible. You know, I never would have thought this was coming true. So I, I call my mom and dad, and I'm like, hey, you're not going to believe this. You know, they said this. Is my, my dad's like, well, you know, it would be great if you came home and uh, we could celebrate this together. And I'm like, dad, well, there's a chance that this might not happen. This is just, you know, because again, as with sports and professional sports, as you know, it's like, you know, things can happen behind the scenes. So I said, don't, don't make a big fuss. Uh, but that's not what happened when I got home. So what happened? So I get home and there's a huge tent in the backyard. True to any Irishman, my dad throws a, maybe a, I don't know, a four kegger. And uh, so all my high school teammates are there. Marty Waters is there. Uh, neighbors are there, all my dad's pals. And I get home and I'm like, holy shit. And I'm like, this is not happening. And you know, I'm the youngest of six. So my siblings are going around like, don't worry, this is going to be great. It's going to be great. I'm like, no, you don't understand. Like, this might not happen. And if it's if it, we're sitting there watching the television, my name's, my name's not called. It's going to be pretty freaking embarrassing to have all these people there. So everyone's coming up to me and and. You know, I'm hearing from their version of what my dad says. They're like, oh, this is so exciting. You know, you're Milwaukee, well, it's going to be a great fit for you. And I'm like, no, 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 no. And I'm going through one by one, like, this might not happen. They're like, oh, sure, it's going to happen. So television goes on. They're starting to go through the, the first round. Um, you know, that time, Tim Duncan, you know, I think it's the first pick. And uh, they're going through all these guys, and everyone's like, this is so exciting. Gets to the second round, 42nd pick. Um, Gentleman comes up to the podium, you know, for the 42nd pick of the 1997 draft, the Milwaukee Bucks select Gerald Honeycutt from Tulane. And I, I'm telling you, I'm sitting there and all my friends, everyone's behind me. And when I turn, there's just styrofoam cups like floating in the air. And there's just this vapor. Of everyone's leaving the room as fast as they can. <laughs> That one had to hurt, right? Yeah. Uh, Gerald Honeycutt, known as Meat to Meat, ends up uh, ends up going uh, ends up going thirty. It was actually thirty eight. It's the thirty eight. But let me ask you: There's a bunch of traditional centers that went. Okay, I'm going to ask you honestly: Which one of these hurt the most? Okay, because um, I got I got hold on a Donald Foyle, guy okay, who had that great career at Colgate. 
right? Um, he was ninth. Scott Pollard, Kelvin Cato, Paul Grant, uh, John Thomas from Minnesota, Serge Zwicker from North Carolina, Jason Lawson from Nova, um, Paul Rogers, Mark Blunt, um, and then some foreign players went as well. Um, I, you know, I, I think when I was out in Phoenix and uh, the Chicago thing, I think I compared myself to who, who do I who do I look like? And, and Paul Grant stood out to me, and I was like, you know what? I think I, I can compare myself with him. So when Paul went, I was like, okay, there was kind of no one in the room would have known, but I was like, you know, I think this is probably the most likely of people that's next to me that I know this could probably happen. So when it didn't, uh, man, I kicked the door and uh, I walked out my front door, started walking down the street, kicking rocks, just like, this is bullshit. I just wasted all this time and uh, never had any clue about, um, you know, a couple specifics, what was going on behind the scenes. And of course, I didn't realize that I, I had a, you know, a Bosman status and we'll get into that later and yeah. having born in Ireland. So I just thought it was over. And so then my brother came out to the front door looking for me and he's like, Pat, Pat, the New York Knicks are on the phone. And so right away I was like, I lit up and I'm like, okay. And I'm sorry. That's, that was one of the other teams I worked out for. So I, uh, I ran back to the house and got on the phone and uh, I was delighted to hear that they were like, look, uh, we, you know, we were trying to figure out how to work some deals behind the scenes in the second round. Couldn't get anyone to bite. But we'd love to invite you into our summer league uh, roster. So, uh, what what Warren say about about what your expectations should be and about what to do next? Um, I think he kind of went over again, like you know, hey, it was a funny draft. There was a lot of early bigs picked up, um, but this doesn't mean the end of it. And you know, like any agent, anybody who's been in the business for a while, he's trying to put a positive side. He's like, this is great. Now nobody owns your rights. So now you can uh, you can go play for anybody you want in the summer, and I think that we could uh, we could still make a roster. So uh, he said, you know, the Knicks. Um, I've been talking to them; they really like the workout that you had, and uh, they'd love to to bring you to bring you on. And I think that you go out and make a statement in the summer league. Um. So, when did you go to New York? So I go up to New York. Maybe I don't even know how soon after that. I go up to New York. Uh, Jeff Van Gundy is a coach at the time. So I get up to their training space. I think it's in Rochester. And so I'm, I'm, I'm training with about 20 guys and they're trying to get to the final cut. Uh, John Thomas was one of their picks. He was there. And so just working as hard as I can. I, I just remember this gym that we're working out. It was at a small college. It was, it must've been 115 degrees in this gym. And uh, Jeff Van Gundy just sharp, sharp tongue just if you were not in line with what he wanted he was going to call you out and he just he was just blunt i just remember guys like they would sit there and go get drinks of water and he would just be you know explicit like f-bomb like what the f are you doing you know we no one said get water and he's like telling guys you know he's like look if you're not if you're not putting your best effort into this he goes good luck to you in the future he goes if you if you think other teams are going to come look to, at you now he goes Go get your high school gym, go in there, get a, get a trainer, call NBA teams. And when you get in the gym, just lock the effing door because nobody's coming. And uh, 
guys were just getting called out. Like it was, I mean, there was one guy who had something on his, he had a tattoo on his arm. It said like pain or something like that. And Jeff was just like going up, the coach just going, he's like pain. He goes, that should say dumbass. And uh, I'm just sitting there like, I had never seen anything like it. You know, coming from Tommy Joe Eagles and Cliff Ballas and of course my high school coach, I've never seen the business side being so real that, you know, if you weren't, if you weren't what they were ordering, they're just kicking you out. Summer League, was it Long Beach State or was it? Uh... Uh, yeah, it was Long Beach State. So I get out there and uh, it was great. Like, you know, I, I remember uh, John Thomas was getting into a lot of foul trouble. So I was next up. And uh, I just remember we just I had something to prove. And uh, so every time I got the ball into the basket, I was just dunking on everybody that I could find. And just everybody was like, holy shit, like, you know, sir, dunk a lot. You know, and I'm like, look, I'm just I'm just keyed in on everything that I can do to become one of the best players inside of this this showcase. And uh, at the end of it, Van Gundy came up to me and he started sharing with me some, two things that were very, very interesting. One, he said, hey, Pat, uh, I know your agent, Warren. And he goes, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you this. We really like you. And uh, we're going to do something the New York Knicks have never done in the history. We're going to offer you a guaranteed contract to an undrafted rookie. And I was like, holy shit, this is it. I just made the NBA. And he goes, but your agent's also telling me that you have some pretty lucrative deals um, that are coming from Europe. And I I still didn't understand the whole Bosman thing. So when I get home, uh, I I have a guy who's been out for a while, Rob Rodan, um, he's my roommate, big seven footer. And so I was sitting there and I said, Rob, what would you do? And he goes, man, I'm telling you this. I've heard a lot of people go to Europe. I said, but if I had that contract with the Knicks, I would sign that right now. And uh, I was like, okay. So then I talked to Warren and Warren was like, look, you can sign that contract. And I probably, it's going to be great. You're going to be, you're going to be on an NBA team. You'll, you'll, you'll have an NBA lifestyle. He said, but I'm telling you, you know, the Patrick Ewing is not coming out of that game. And everybody is convinced that you haven't reached your potential yet. And I, what I mean by that is if you go there, you're not getting in, you're not getting game experience. It could be one and done. And what I have for you is there's, a Span- there's an Italian coach coaching a Spanish team in the Spanish league, Sergio Scarliolo. And uh, he says he likes you a lot. And I guarantee you that you'll probably play anywhere from 25 minutes and up in every game. And I think that you're going to get what you need is more development. So I sat there and I'm looking at these two options. And, uh, you know, then, the, of course, the, the money came into it. And I was like, OK, here's the NBA minimum. And I'm looking at almost twice the amount to go play in Spain. And I was like, OK, this is really cool. And then I started thinking about what uh, Warren was sharing. So I said, Warren, I'm, I'm going to go with the, the Spanish uh, opportunity. Uh, all right. So you pack up your stuff and you go to Spain. What do you remember about arriving in Spain? <laughs> so I, obviously having a European background, I get over there. You know, I don't know any Spanish. Uh I get there during the middle of a festival. It's a small town called Victoria. It's just outside of Bilbao, northern Spain. Uh, very good basketball club. And uh, there's a festival going on that everything is shut down for like two days. So the, the handler that picks me up, he's telling me in broken English, like, okay, there's this festival going on. Here's your apartment. I get into my apartment. 
I don't have any. No, we're not even on the euro currency yet. So it's pesetas. So I'm sitting there. I have no pesetas. The banks aren't open. So for like a, like almost two days, I'm sitting there in my apartment. Like I'm, I'm like, okay, I haven't eaten. I'm walking around. I can't exchange anything. Everything's closed down. I remember I get to the first practice and I go up to Sergio and he's like, hey, you know, how are you doing? Checking in. I said, Sergio, you know, I, I'm starving. I haven't eaten in like a day and a half. And uh, I, I just remember he was like, you know, apologetic about it but that was my first experience and then of course when the practices started it was um it was, a, it was a, not just a culture shock but the basketball and of course the way it was coached was totally different than what i was used to as well fox sports radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com and within the iHeartRadio app search fsr to listen live Winning is an everyday mindset, and we're here to help. I'm Craig Robinson. Join me and Coach John Calipari for Ways to Win. How do you play? How do you work when you're not at your best? Coach Cal and I will share some wisdom from our time coaching, and we'll apply that wisdom to your off-court challenges. you got to win every day. Find the Ways to Win podcast anywhere you listen. Do you love Selena? Like, really love? Whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to Stan, the Queen of Tejano. And Stan, we do over three whole episodes of our podcast, Becoming an Icon. We're reminiscing as lifelong Selena fans, sharing hot takes and telling her story. Listen to Becoming an Icon on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Becoming an Icon. You had uh, what Elmer Bennett was was kind of an old head and yeah. what Brent Brent Scott as well. So yeah. uh, for, for people who don't know, and I think this is right when, I don't know if Bozeman status started then. I thought it started in 2000, but you had a European passport, so you didn't count as an American. Yeah, so it's actually started one year before I got there. Uh, there was a it was a gentleman with the last name, surname Bozeman, and I think he was a German national, and he was playing in Spain or France or Italy. And so, for people that don't know, when you're playing overseas, there is a uh, there's an agreement in each league of how many foreigners can actually uh, penetrate a roster because they don't want to have, of course, what's happening in the NBA. They're they're looking to protect the national side of things. So they want to make sure that they're cultivating the younger guys who are coming in, of course, protecting the contracts of the, the Spanish guys. And then they, they have like two spots. So it's, it's changed a lot since I played, but at the time it was two Americans or two foreigners and everybody else could be uh, just a European national, which Bosman would go underneath that. So understanding the very easy way to think about it is just, they were getting an American with me joining the roster, but I was only counting as a, as one of the European guys. Right. Um, okay. So what was your season like? And, and as people have come to learn, the style of basketball is very different. You point out the coaching is very different. It's yeah. still it kind of almost collegial in that it's coaching, coaching centric more than player centric. Right. Yes. Um, what was that? What was that adjustment like coming from Auburn to now playing at Taos Ramica? So I'd say that I say the buildup is, you know, when, when I was at Auburn, you know, you're watching the NBA, you know, you're watching every game and there's, you know, there's that fast paced, you know, alley dunks, you know, four quarters, last second shots, all of that. And so that's kind of something to kind of get seeded into your mentality. Like, I can't wait for this to happen. So when I get to Europe, 
I'm sitting there and everything's slowed down and it's very tactful in its, uh, its focus. So everything becomes five guys for working for one good shot. Um, you know, it's, it's all about, you know, like getting ready for every team, like with just hours and hours of uh, practice sessions, going over pick and rolls, uh, how we're going to actually play, you know, on the ball defense. So it just becomes, it becomes very cumbersome. It becomes uh, to the point where I just feel like I, I'm taking shots in the beginning that they're like, no, you're not going to do that. So it was almost like I was this wild horse and they were trying to put a saddle on my back. And uh, at first I was bucking it off. I was like, no, I'm not going down with this bullshit. I'm going to keep playing the way I want. And so Sergio and I, we, we got into a lot of arguments. Um, but you guys won the league, right? Well, we went to the finals that year. So just making it to the finals. So again, is for any of the people listening, the European has a kind of a relegation system where, you know, depending on how your team does in one season, that'll generate kind of where you're going the following season. So what happened was, is we actually qualified for the highest uh, European tournament at that time. And it was something that they hadn't done in the history or, or a long time in the history of that team. So they were very excited. There was a lot of momentum. Uh, we played very well. We had a, we had a great unit uh, as far as the collective and all the guys. And so what I was starting to realize is what I was trying to fight, I really started to appreciate more and more as the season was going on. I started to realize, you know, there is a sense of family here. There is, you know, the collective of all of us, you know, when we would go to meals, pregame meals, we were all, you know, joining in with family stories and how we were doing. And there was something that uh, I didn't have in other teams. Um, so having gone that far all the way to the finals, it was something that looking back, I took with me every year after that. Is We made it all the way to the finals and we didn't win. And that hurt. And I remember uh, Sergio Scarliolo at the end of the season was like, you know, you know in, in Europe, we have what's called pseudo campions. It's like the second place. And it, we didn't want to hear we were second place because, you know, we had worked so hard and uh, we believed that we should have won that league. But uh, at that time, uh, TDK Manresa, they had our number. And uh, so it just turned out that uh, from that point forward, I was like, I understand how much you've got to put into this. And if I ever get a chance to get all the way back here, I'm never I'm not going to you know take this as a. Uh, as something that you just, you know, you get there and you just kind of rest on what you've been working for. I'm like, you know, I'm going to put as much as I can into winning every time we get into this. Okay. So you get done with that year. What, what, what was the decision like as to what to do next? So I actually had a, you know, there's the shorter contracts in Europe. So usually they'll have like a, there's a one plus one and it'll be like, you know, you can agree on it or the team will agree on it. And uh, so at the end of that, I just, I don't know, I just didn't connect with the, the coaching. And I knew that a lot of the other guys like Brent Scott, who uh, really became like a brother to me, they weren't looking to bring him back. And they were looking to bring back Elmer, Bennett, and, and some other guys. And so at that time, I, you know, I went home for the offseason and I told Warren, I said, I don't think I want to go back there. And uh, so then this team Panathinaikos in Greece contacted him and uh, they had, watched me play and they had scouted tapes and they were like, look, you know, we'd like to sign Pat to a two-year deal. And so I was like, okay, well at that time, so I'm back in the summer, I start working out for Cleveland, uh, the Cavs, 
uh, the Chicago Bulls. Um, and then when I when I finished working out with them, both of those teams offered me a minimum deal. And I'm back to that same situation like with the Knicks. And so I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, I can take this now or I can take even bigger opportunities with bigger financial, uh, I guess, uh, contracts than what would have been offered for these minimum deals. So then I went and I signed a two-year deal with uh, Panathinaikos. Now, the only thing about signing in Greece is people think, you're only going to get half your money, right? Like the, the, the old story in Greece is guys are making half what they tell you and they only get half of that actually into their bank account. What's yeah. the reality? Now, you played on the biggest club in Greece. What was that like? Um, never, I, I, I'm fortunate enough that in my, home, my, con my contracts with Warren, I, you know, I'd see the gentleman side of Warren. I said, but there was a bulldog behind the business side of him. And uh, I never lost $1 with any of the teams I played with. So, I, you know, I get to Panathinaikos and uh, two brothers own the team. And they, they also own a very large pharmaceutical company. So the, uh, the budget for the whole team was so large that they would delay monthly payments, you know, because there was so much they were like, you know, trying to make as much as they can on interest or wherever they had invested their money. So there was times where... I'd sit there and I'd be like, look, um, you know, this is very awkward, but, you know, there's there's money that, uh, you know, we've signed a contract for. And uh, so then I would go like another two months. And I remember I'd going up to our coach, Coach Obradovich, and I just started creating a kind of this illusion that uh, I had businesses and people that were counting on me back home. I said, you know, I've got a business back home and there are people that I'm paying and I got to make sure that keeps going. So I might have to fly back during the season to take care of this, to figure out what assets we're going to like, you know, change over so I can pay these people. And remarkably, you got paid. And remarkably, yeah. So then these two little guys come into the to the locker room and all the Greek nationals, they're all terrified of them. So these two little guys are going around, they're just going, You have a claim? Do you have a claim? Do you have a claim? And I was like, No, I don't have a claim. You know, I just I just know that I have an agreement. You know, we made an agreement and uh they're just looking at me like, Why is this one guy not afraid of us? And I'm like, you know. The, the reality is, is, you know, there's basketball everywhere. So if you want to break the contract, we know we can go somewhere else. So then after one game, I'm, I'm, we, we've, we win a game and I'm coming out the tunnel. And these two guys, they're way up at the top. They practically have two thrones sitting there watching the games. And as I'm walking through the tunnel, just underneath them, they stop and they're like, Burke, Burke. and I look up at them and they're like, we sent the money. And I was like, oh, okay, thank you. You know, and just and walked into the locker room, like, you know, you know awkward, but uh, I guess it's just the way it's done. How'd you play? Um, so that first year I got in there, I was I was the understudy to Dino Raja. And that first coach that I had there, um, he was Dino's best friend. <laughs> and it was it was, it was uh, the most awkward situation because you're coming from college. Now you have one experience in Spain where everybody's treated the same. But Dino was the exception. Dino would, uh, he says he was the best friend. He, he didn't come to the training camp the same as us. His girlfriend shows up at the training camp and stays with him. Um, before games, the, the experience was uh, extremely militant. So they wanted us like all together at a hotel, taking a nap, eating our meal before even home games. So after the meal, when we'd all have to go, go to sleep and go to our rooms, Dino would eat his meal and he would just walk out into the parking lot and just start to walk away. And so one day I was like, well, you know, my wife is sitting at home. I, I think I'm just going to, I can go take a rest at my house. So I start walking out and the assistant coach 
comes out to me and I'm just standing next to Dino and we're both kind of walking to our cars and he's like, Pat, Pat, uh, where are you going? And I said, uh, and I'm just looking over at Dino. I said, I think I'm just going to take a rest at home before the game. And he's like, no, no, it's, it's better that you, uh, you come over here and stay in the hotel. And I keep looking over at Dino and Dino gives me this as half smirk, like, Hey, the rules don't apply to me. They apply to you. And so I was like, you know, in the best interest of not starting an argument, I just walked back in and just followed suit. And again, it goes back into yeah, you know, like I think most people who've played in Europe, they realize like when you get there, you're slowly being hypnotized into a culture. And then before long, it's like you're, you're just giving up your thoughts. You're just like, OK, this is what we do. This is how we do it. And every year, Doug, every year I had left in those nine years, as soon as I got on the flight um, to leave, I would sit there like shaking my head like, oh, my God, they, they had a, a total hypnosis over me about what to think, what to wear, you know, what I was supposed to do. And then you'd finally be freed of it because you get, you're allowed to think for yourself. And uh, that's one of the things that I, I recognized that, you know, European mentality with the coaching and the whole idea of team is, is extremely militant. It, it really, it, it really is. The next year you got to start, right? Dino, what, do you retire? So, yeah, no, so Dino then went over to our rival team, to Olympiacos. He got another big, bigger contract. So he ends up leaving. Big news inside the newspapers. Uh, we sign a new coach. Uh, we didn't go as far as we wanted in the European tournament, but we did win the Greek League that year. So the next year they bring in Zelko Obradovic. And around that time, if you remember, you know, kind of in the world of basketball, so it's around 2000 now, this is when Yugoslavian coaches are, are really the pinnacle of thoughts of how to produce the best basketball teams. So a lot of what they were producing as far as like, you know, going on, like we used to go to these training space in uh, big guards. They like big guards. Big guard. Well, the point guard, the point guard uh, role was broken down. It was like a science. And I felt, I almost felt bad for every point guard we had because that's where our coach was. He was a, he was a, he was a point guard in the past. So everything they would do was just righteously told, no, no, you stop right here. And it's two dribbles, not four. You know, you go over here and you make the fake this way with your head, the ball over your head like this, and you do this, and this is the speed you do. So everything was broken down to this exact ideal model. So when Obradovich came in, he changed the whole system and he started challenging every, every one of our players. So then he also brought in, at the time, uh, Zelko Rebracha. And so Zelko had just won the Italian league. And so when he came in, he was the starting center. So he was, you know, at that time we had Dayan Bodiroga and uh, Zelko um, uh, Rebrecha came in. And those guys were, you know, like at the time we were playing for the national team. And this is what I was sharing about the USA team. This is around the time that there was a huge disruption in any type of international basketball, you know, where, you know, from like 2000, 2001, these guys were, uh, you know, they were winning gold medals. Uh, they were taking out our it's USA team, and that's right around the time that uh, they, you know, they, they kind of tapped, USA tapped out and said, look, we got to rethink this, how we're building teams, and they got Mike Krzyzewski involved. It's interesting. So my first pro experience, um, I was with Interperformances, right? So they were the other big, big agency overseas. And in 2000, uh, we had a Yugoslavian coach. And the, the plan was because 
I, I could get Israeli citizenship. I'd be a Bozeman B. Right, you were a Bozeman A. Yeah. I was a Bozeman B. But I remember what I remember is I go to training camp, and we have the other point guard is Heath, Mister Jennings, who's like five eight, five nine, but unbelievable score. Played in the NBA, East Tennessee State, like unbelievable score. And he's kind of an old head, right? I think probably thirty at the time. And so I, I'm the backup point guard, but, and because I'm a, I, I would, I would have been Israeli, like, uh, okay, it fine, it fits. But the only, like, the only thing you could do to overcome a, because we had a Yugoslavian coach, the only thing you could o- do to overcome the fact that you were small is you had to play the NBA and be able to just go get buckets, right? O- otherwise, if you weren't six, five or above, you couldn't be a playmaker, couldn't be a point guard, right? So this guy, I'm telling you, like in training camp, like he hated me. And what's crazy is like, I played mostly the way that they'd want to play, but I was just small, yeah. you know, just small. And, um, but it was, it was amazing on how they, they truly believe like that there are specific passes, a number of dribbles, a way to enter the offense, a way to cut. Like, I mean, as you point out, like specific, this is the only way to do it. And like, yeah. oh, Okay. Yeah, uh, it was it was very very confusing to, to me. But at that time, okay. So now you've been in Greece for a couple of years, right? You started to I I think was it when you went back to Spain that you established yourself as probably you know the premier or one of the two or three premier centers in Europe. What what, what year do you think was the, was the peak? Um, well, I think so. I I finished Panathinaikos and I went to a smaller team, Marusi. And that's when I, I got my opportunity to just to showcase what I could do. And so I uh, had a good year. And so coming out of that, you know, a lot of people come up to me. I, I remember we actually even played Panathinaikos in our home gym and we beat them. And I hear from one of my good friends, Johnny Rogers, that the, the two owners are yelling at the coaching staff, like, why did we ever get rid of him? You know, and so after that, I get a phone call from... Um, my agent after that year that I, I played so well. And he's like, Hey, that first team wants to pick you up. Uh, you know, the team in Spain, Tau Ceramica. So I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, they've been looking to get you back for years. And I said, okay. So then they give me an offer. It's the largest offer that I've ever, ever had. And I'm like, holy shit. So I said, well, I've heard a little bit about this coach. So let me do some research with Elmer Bennett. So I call Elmer and Elmer's like, Pat, you and this guy will not mix. And I'm like, okay. All right. So I call back my agent. And I'm like, uh, I don't think it's going to work. He's like, okay, you sure? And I'm like, yeah, he's a lot of money. I said, no, I understand. Now at that time, my wife and I, we just had uh, newborn twins. They were premature. They had uh, heart monitors on them. And so now I'm not just looking out for myself, my wife. Now I'm looking out for a, an environment that's going to help me to be you know, a better father and not have a bunch of stuff getting in my, getting in my head. So anyways, he calls me back like 10 minutes later. He said, they upped the offer. So now it's even more. So now I'm thinking, okay, money's going to solve everything. So I go over, sign the deal, go in. I said, one thing I got to get. Now, this is at the point where I've played five years and money is really, you know, even though this is a great deal, money is not the ultimate because I realized I've just missed my brothers and sisters. I've missed weddings. I've missed, you know, uh, I missed funerals. And I was like, you know what? My family time is, is 
going at, at the wayside here for all of this stuff because you know when i get over there it's so militant you're not allowed to leave anywhere you're that you're it's not, it's not just that it's like for people who don't understand like you end up missing it's a family like sports on tv regular you know on on one hand right very profitable life and in terms of basketball and i'm guessing what two practices a day everywhere you went correct yep Two, two practices a day. So it, it is a job. It is a lot of work, but oftentimes like it's basketball. It's not, but the, all the things you're missing, like there's a value, there's a tangible value to that. And you can't, something goes wrong or somebody needs help. You can't hop on a flight and fly from Spain or Greece to just be home for a couple of days. Like once you're in, you're in, once you're out, you're out. That's exactly it. And so I, I asked to go to my brother's wedding. So my brother was getting married in Ireland um during the preseason and i said you know i'd like to get you know five days off to get up there go go be around my family so the owner of the the president of the team carrie Hete, he says okay so we signed the deal long story short didn't work out with the coach he was like no you got you got an option you can either go to your brother's wedding and be off this team or you can stay with us so i shook his hand i said well good luck to you this year and everybody in the town hated they were like Oh, we don't have a center now. Like this is unbelievable. Like, so, and then you went to Real, right? So no. So then I, 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 I get a call from my brother's wedding. I'm sitting there. I'm leaving at one a.m. This is the coach. He took my five days, and they agree. They said, okay, you know, we'll let you go for two days. So I go to my brother's wedding, and I'm flying back to Spain. And the someone in the lobby comes out and says, "Hey, there's somebody from the Orlando Magic on the phone." And so I get on the phone. And they, this uh, gentleman tells me, one of their scouts, he's like, look, Stephen Hunter just tore his ACL. I think that you could make the team. And he's like, how's Spain going? And I'm like, it's not going well. You know, I'm ready to give everything back. So anyways, I go and I, I come back. Uh, I, I leave Tau Ceramica and I make the Orlando Magic. And I remember it was like, everyone's like, you know, where'd this guy come from? I'm like, hey, you know, I've been in America for a long time, you know. And they're like, you know, Grant Hill, Tracy McGrady, like, wh where'd this dude come from? And I'm like, I've just been playing overseas for five years. So then just getting my name back into the mix, you know, I go in and I'm, I'm a starting center for like the first nine or 10 games. And, uh, you know, I think that that kind of charged that, okay, you know, this guy, he is an NBA caliber player. And then all of a sudden it became to the point where when I went back, because after that year, another just a little tangent is, you know, Doc asked me at the end of the year, you know, would you like to come back? And I said, Doc, I'm taking a huge pay cut coming back here. The season didn't go the way I, I would have liked. Um, I, I think that my best playing style is to play with European teams. And he understood. So he said, thank you for the opportunity. And that's when I went back. And of course, like a, a year later, I'm playing for Real Madrid. And that's I think that's where uh, the Phoenix Suns then started to realize, like, look, th this guy can play. Okay, so uh, for people who don't know, you, we mentioned the two practices a day. Okay. Paint the picture of the differences. Let's start with uh, Maruse, where you had that great year. What was their facilities like? Did they have a practice uh, gym. They have a regular arena. What was it all like? Very small. It's uh, probably could fit a thousand people. Smaller than a high school gym. Um, the there's two staircases going. One would go into the locker room, an unfinished locker room. It was just a big concrete slab cell with like a picket hose and everyone's sharing a shower and then on the other side of the basement there was a weight room 
that would you know had like two dumbbells and uh you know just a couple kettlebells so that was that was that year but it was a great family experience even though you knew that it didn't have you know the most high tech and, and best equipment you know there was a lot of people around there was a very good owner who cared a lot about you know the team and the guys and putting together the best team that he could in environment so coming from there and then and then coming over and then walking into you know the orlando magic practice facility where i'm, I'm getting a, a retina scan to get in the door they're doing some like sci-fi thing with my hand. They can fingerprint it like two or three times. So then there's like a laser beam that goes by my hand to let me into the practice facility, you know, with a gate. And then you get in there and there's just a bunch of Range Rovers and uh, Lamborghinis sitting in the, the parking lot. It's a totally different experience. Um, by the way, I'm looking at Marusi's gym. Uh, pretty well, it says it seats 1,700 people. Uh, it does have stands on the side there. Yeah. And I... And this is interesting because you played later in Russia in Himki. Himki, yep. when I played Tiny Gym. And then we played, I don't know if Mineral Water, Mineral Boda was in the league when you played. But they literally had uh, stands behind the basket, a little bit behind the benches. And then they had like a track that people were like four or five deep on. And then a wall on the other side. I was like, how do they make any money on this deal? Like, how yeah, does this even yeah. work? It's yeah. like such bullshit. It was amazing. Yeah, I, I don't think it's the same business model as far as the order's investment. Oh, it's, no, all mafia, it's all a mafia thing where they do yeah, something. Yeah. But, but no way. I mean, it, they're not even making that much money. Like if you think about the NBA with just the merchandise, you know, the ecosystem that they have with merchandise, tickets, fan experience, everything. I think that most of Europe is just on television rights alone. You know, and I think that that's what what they they have, and it's funny because you see such a difference in the fans, and of course the business owners. That you know, you, you, when you're in the when you're in the NBA, you see all this sensationalism. Everything is just so heightened about the experience and everything that's going on. But when you get to Europe, it's just very cut and dry. This is what we're here for. You know, we're not here for all these little frills and this and that. You're not here to like sign jerseys and sign or, or sell any jerseys or hats or anything like that. So it's 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 a very different world. Uh, okay, so you're you're with the Orlando Magic. You played my guy Pat Garrity, right? Ironic, ironically, you're the Irish one. He's Irish, but from Colorado. Right? Yeah. But if somebody would have said, "Hey, who's the Irish national playing for the Magic?" They would have put Patrick Garrity. They wouldn't have picked uh, Patrick sure. Bird. And, and since then, they still do it. Like someone will see me and they don't recognize me, and I'll tell them, "Yeah, I, I, you know, my name is Pat. I played for the Magic." They're like, "Oh, you're the Irish guy." I'm like, "Yeah." Like, man, you used to knock down those threes with that hitch with your foot. I'm like, that's Pat Garrity. And I don't even know if he's... <laughs> <you know. laughs> there, there is, there uh, is a lot of that. It's like, and you know, I don't I don't look to fight it. It's just like, you know, if they, if they even realize that, you know, there's another guy named Pat on the Magic, I'm like, that's cool. What, uh, what was Grant Hill like? Uh, he was amazing. I remember when, when I got there, he was probably the first person just in the in the preseason just playing five on five pickup. He was the first person that was like, man, you know, like you you can really play. And when someone at that caliber tells you something, you know, you go home and you tell your parents, you tell your wife, you know, I'm sitting there like it's boosting my confidence. And so that was a, that was a really cool thing. And then as the just before he got hurt, just playing with them, you know, his court vision and his uh, his ability like 
I don't think he was attempting to get everyone involved, but him being on the court, like I was, I was getting a lot of points just for him seeing me cut and drive and running, you know, running the floor. So when he got hurt, it was like everything just completely changed. Like just the whole system of the way the ball moved started to change. And then, you know, of course, then it was, it became really more Mike Miller and Tracy McGrady that would get the ball all the time. But when Grant was there, um, I, I remember I was reading, um, uh, I was reading a book, like I think it was like a Motley Crue book or something. And uh, it was one of these documentaries that had a lot of just incredible stories. And I remember just on the bus, I just finished it. And he was like, hey, you know, can I read that? And I'm like, sure. And I'm thinking, what would Grant Hill want to be reading something about like a heavy metal band? But, you know, he's just open to you know a lot of conversation. And I've seen him since. He's, he's still the same person. It's like you can sit yeah. there and you can just have a chat about anything and everything. And, he, you know, there's no ego inside of him. He's just, you know, he's sitting there. He's a very caring individual. Um, that was the last year Sean Kemp was in the league. Yeah. Give me your best Sean Kemp story. Uh, if I do this, this, uh, this podcast might go, uh, I don't know, might go over to someplace you don't want it to. That was my road guy. So, Sean, right away, Sean and Daryl Armstrong and myself, uh, we, we got along great. And so like whenever we were, we weren't playing or we we're on the road, you know, we were the three guys that would go out and get a beer. And I, I just remember there was a, there was a road trip where let's just say it was a five game stretch. And so the first time we, get, we pull into wherever it was, let's just say it's Denver. We go out, we have a few too many. We're sitting there the next day after the game, we're showering up. Sean's probably had 12 points. He's got like nine rebounds. Daryl's got like 18 points, like 12 assists. And I'm sitting there with one point and, uh, you know, probably I fouled out. And then the next game, same thing happens again. They, by the third game, and we're going out, you know, all the time. They're sitting there like, let's go, Road Dogs. This is working. This is and I was like, guys, uh, we're sitting in the shower. And I'm like, guys, I don't know if this is working out for me. You know, I, I like I know we're going out and having fun, but I'm just not playing the well. And they're like, "Don't ruin this, Burke. Don't ruin this. This is good." And I'm like, "I don't think this is good, guys." And they're like, "We're going out tonight." And I'm like, "Okay, whatever." And I just remember like Doc Rivers coming up to me later, and he's like, "Pat, uh, Sean, and and Daryl, they, they you know they they uh they get after it pretty hard. I know you got a good head on your shoulders. Like uh, you, you need to look out for them. We we're gonna need them." And I'm like, "Okay." And I'm like, "Who's looking out for me?" You know, but yeah, just great, great guys, great memories. You know, just it's just funny at that point because, you know, like with any athlete, you're looking for some sort of consistency to say, how are we living our lives that we're, we're, we're able to go out here and still perform? And their variables were going out with me, having a few beers. And then uh, at the end, they were sitting there comparing stats. But as long as theirs were good and mine were shit, everything was fine. Winning is an everyday mindset. And we're here to help I'm Craig Robinson. Join me and Coach John Calipari for Ways to Win. How do you play? How do you work when you're not at your best? Coach Cal and I will share some wisdom from our time coaching, and we'll apply that wisdom to your off-court challenges. you got to win every day. Find the Ways to Win podcast anywhere you listen. Do you love Selena? Like, really love whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to stand the Queen of Tejano. 
And Stan, we do over three whole episodes of our podcast, Becoming an Icon. We're reminiscing as lifelong Selena fans, sharing hot takes and telling her story. Listen to Becoming an Icon on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Becoming an Icon. Um, why Tracy McGrady at that time should have been like at his peak, right? The next year he actually, next two years he led the league in scoring. Yeah. but. He, he didn't win. Okay. He didn't win. Why? Um, I'd say just experience. Uh, you know, again, is uh, you know, coming from Toronto, uh, you know, I don't think I don't think you can ever how would I say this in an approach? It's like saying to somebody, Hey, I want you to think of a color you've never thought of before. You know, it's impossible. So how could he think differently? if he's never been all the way to the top to realize it, like, you know, in, in a comparison, like when I went, when I was playing with Spain and we went all the way to the finals, that was the, that was the most success that I've ever experienced. So everything that was coming in was a new minute. It was a new 10 minutes. It was a new hour. So I was like, wow, I've never been in this situation. When I look back at Tracy, you know, here, here's all this talent, um, you know, great guy, but you know, leadership, they say, is lonely. So I think that a lot of times he was leading just by his physical example, but was it doing enough, you know, off, off, outside the court? You know, was he putting enough demand on us and what we were doing? Because I remember I went through a whole confidence thing again where I, I just sank. And I remember he just kept coming up to me like as if it was, uh, you know, some sort of valuable uh, counseling. He's like, Pat, you're fucking good enough. Let's go. And I just be like, okay. You know, and that would be it. So I, I think going into that year, you know, we're in the playoffs, you know, we're up against Detroit. And then, uh, you know, he communicates something into the, the newspaper about how easily we're, we're rolling through Detroit, woke them up. So, again, as there's there's another moment where I'm sure he said, I'll never do that again. You know, and I think that uh, a lot of a lot of what the magic organization and I'm not trying to bash them, but a lot of what the magic organization is, it, it looks like guesswork at times is how do we come back and, and, and start winning? How do we get to that caliber? And they're building it around Tracy and they've got the, uh, the injury with grant. So I, I think, you know, a guy like me at the starting center, it's like, everyone's like, who the hell is that guy? So I think that even the roster at the time was not going to be one that was going to support him to go far, you know, in that year. What was Ben Wallace like to guard? uh he was a beast you know i think there's a lot of i think there's a lot of guys that fit the bill as far as you know the size uh there's their stats all that but here's this unorthodox six eight guy playing center with just hulk strength and just his hard hat you know going out and so um i, I just remember that you know he was good friends with daryl armstrong so I would get a lot of uh, communication of like what he was thinking during the playoffs and what he was saying. And uh, I, just, I just remember thinking that, you know, this guy is, uh, you know, somebody that I would love to find out what he's doing and how he's, you know, how he's, you know, figuring out how to get these extra rebounds. You know, what are what are the techniques that he's using? But uh, just just a beast at that time. Doc, obviously, he catches a lot of shit because how many of his teams have been up three games to one? Yeah. This was like the first. This was the first one, right? You have three games. One you mentioned with, with, with Tracy, yeah. like you you lived it. How much? How much of the fault or blame does Doc deserve? I I could say that I I don't know every conversation he was having behind the scenes uh, with players. I think that of course, 
you know, you're, you're managing ego when you're an NBA coach, you're also putting together, you know, the best rotations that you can. You're looking at, of course, everything that you're doing and, and is it working? So at that time it was working, but I, I do know this, when we went into that, that uh, last game, Doc's a great motivator, but I, I don't know where the hell he got his last motivational speech from. Cause it was something about how Coca-Cola is the number one selling soda and it it puts millions of dollars into its marketing and then he started comparing pepsi and pepsi does this and coke does this and i'll tell you what by the end of the damn motivational speech i think we're all thirsty for a soda you know it was like i walked over at daryl armstrong and i was like what the hell did that all mean and daryl's like, just just be ready tonight and i was like okay you know we go off and we lose the game but uh for that to be his first one, I, I did hear that, uh, and, and rightfully so, I'll, I'll own this, you know, I, again, is he said, if you look back on those rosters, especially the first one, you know, I don't even know if we should have been in the playoffs. So he, he put a lot of work into the regular season. I remember his door was always open. You know, he communicated to me all the time. You know, we had just lost Horace Grant in the, in the beginning, beginning of the season with, you know, a confrontation that happened uh, on one of our plane rides. And when Horace was left from the team, the next day, Doc was talking to me about, I'm going to start you. I believe in you. I think you can do this. And uh, again, as it was like, okay, I've never had a coach like this at this level that's talking to me about belief and, and allowing me to do what, you know, whatever I could do on the floor. But again, as I think that uh, he's learned a lot from it. No, it's interesting you point out, right? Uh, That that roster, if you had Horace Grant and you have Grant Hill, well, now that's a much different roster than the one that uh, ended up the season where you have, you know, Gordon Gerichek, Drew uh, Drew Gooden, who's super young at the time, Pat Garrity, Daryl Armstrong, and Tracy McGrady. That's the the starting lineup, you know? It's the starting lineup in in that last game. What ha- what what give, give me what happened? What happened with with Horace and what, what was the confrontation of? Oh man! So we're coming in from I think we're out west and we're getting on the plane, and uh, Horace is one of the last to get on. So so I'm I I would sit to the the right side of the plane and Sean Kemp was in front of me. I can't I can't remember. Oh Horace would have been behind me, and then just to my left. Uh, there's a long couch. And of course, we all know that's Tracy's couch. Like he's going to sleep. He's going to get rest. And so just in front of him, there's the other rookie, um, uh, Ryan from um, Notre Dame. So so we're sitting there and Horace. Yeah, Ryan Humphreys. I had a loss there for his name. So Ryan. So then Horace gets on and he's talking to Sean a little bit. And this and the other. And next thing you know, Tracy says something to him to to um horace about something he's been saying and he's like you know i I heard you you know you've been sharing something about you know leadership of the team and this and the other and horace looks over at tracy and he gets so emotional he starts stuttering and next thing you know he's just like "No, no 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 that's not me and again i won't get into all the dang cussing he did but he was saying you know doc was behind some of this so then he turns his back towards the back of the plane. He's looking at the front and he's talking to Tracy and Daryl Armstrong gets up and Sean's talking about they're like, cool it, calm down, this and the other. The next thing you know, Doc Rivers is right behind Horace as he's on this just rant about, you know, cursing out Doc. 
and I'm sitting there. I got I got front row seats, man. I'm sitting there, Conor McGregor. Like I'm just like, holy shit. And I look over, and Ryan Humphrey's got his head buried in a magazine. I'm like, nah, dude, you want to watch all of this, you know? So I'm watching this, and uh, I mean, Doc is a big man, so he he's like, hey, uh, he says, uh, Horace, you got something to say to me? And Horace turns around, and he's looking right down in his face, and he's like, yeah, and they start going at it, right? And then Sean and myself and Tracy, we're all getting up, we're splitting them apart. Nothing, no swings were thrown. Split them up. And uh, then we were all like, holy shit, did that just happen? You know, that just happened. And then we get off the plane, you know, and everyone's just getting out. And then the next day, you know, they tell me that Horace has been released from the team. And uh, that's and what this, he- And this, this is you coming back from Europe where it's a dictatorship, right? Yeah. yeah. So I'm just like, and, this is insane. Yes. Yeah. It was, a, so, it, was a, it was a totally new experience because you realize that, you know, we're all grown ass men. And, uh, you know, when, I mean, again, just like in any family, I, I do, I still believe like with any culture, any community, any group, any tribe, you have to go through adversity and adversity on the other side of it will start to build or forge something else. And so that's where the adversity was starting in the very beginning of that season. And, uh, there was some communication patterns that I was noticing as a trend, like going, okay, something is happening here because someone's not taking the reins or someone's complaining about their position and they're they're starting to point fingers all right that's it for for part two of my talk with pat burke part three will get you to the phoenix suns experience and what life is like for him after basketball what's it like to shut it down to know that you're done and then to kind of put your American life sort of back together and figure out what you want to do next. A collection of thoughts and stories, and I think you'll be interested to hear what it was like to play in Phoenix when he had to play in the playoffs after a gigantic suspension of Boris Diaw and uh, Amari Stoudemire. Remember that? When they were playing the San Antonio Spurs in the NBA playoffs? Yeah, that was Pepper. What went so wrong for him in that game? You'll find out. On part three. In the meantime, a reminder, the Doug Gottlieb Show is daily, 3 to 5 Eastern time, noon to 2 Pacific. We also have the daily podcast, which is uncensored, unfiltered. You'll love it. It's called In the Bonus. Uh, that's on the iHeartRadio app. Just download it wherever you download podcasts, In the Bonus, or the Doug Gottlieb Show. Thanks so, so much for listening. I'm Doug Gottlieb. This is All Ball. Winning is an everyday mindset, and we're here to help. I'm Craig Robinson. Join me and Coach John Calipari for Ways to Win. How do you play? How do you work when you're not at your best? Coach Cal and I will share some wisdom from our time coaching, and we'll apply that wisdom to your off-court challenges. you got to win every day. Find the Ways to Win podcast anywhere you listen. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at, at First, first listen. listen. 
This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 